Well, good evening. Tonight we're going to broach a subject, uh, one of the basic doctrines of the faith. The elders have rightly decided that we ought to keep track of the doctrines and teach those things which are fundamental to us understanding and establishing a, a full picture of God and who he is through scripture. We're going to talk about a subject tonight that has brought much division to the church. There's much error, and having said that, there are good and godly men of faith on, on all sides of this issue, and we recognize that. And so with some fear and trepidation, when we look at those who are good and godly men and yet have fallen into error, as the warning in Galatians 6 about going to correct a brother, we ought to go with some fear, with humility, lest we also fall into error. Heavenly Father, we do pray that tonight as we um, look into your word, we pray that by the power of your spirit, whom your son promised would guide us into truth, that we would reveal what you would have us here, that we would glorify your name and the power of your spirit in speaking to us. We pray that anything we say in error would just fall away and disappear. For our goal is not to have a position in which we take pride, in which we're firmly entrenched, unless it is a spirit which plants us and then make us unmovable, Father. In all things we wish to finish well, to know the truth, to be set free, and then to loudly proclaim it wherever it takes us. Help us to speak the truth in love and be willing to listen in humility for truth also lest we also fall into error. And all things we commit it to you and bless your name and that of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose power and whose glory we are the recipients of blessings forevermore, freedom from sin, the promise of eternal life, all this through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we come before you now. Amen. I'm going to speak on election and predestination and I would that I could speak strictly from what Scripture says and present just that picture. And we are going to use Scripture. That should be our only foundation. But given the nature of what the church is facing, again, even with good and godly men, preaching election and predestination, which is not faithful to the Word of God and which, in fact, portrays God as a mean despot, I know they don't mean that, but if you look at Scripture, there's no way to take it in, in, in any other vein. So we're forced tonight to present Scripture on predestination and election juxtaposed against what Reformed theology, Calvinism, would say. Having said that, I'm going to read some Scripture. Don't follow me because I'm going to jump all over the place. I'm going to read ten passages in, in five pairs. Just listen to what the first verse says, and then see if the second verse agrees or disagrees with it. Not to bring about confusion, but to make some points and then move forward and to see what Scripture says to us. John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. 1 Corinthians 2.14, But natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. 
How about this pair, Romans 10, 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But Isaiah 64, 7 says, and there is no one who calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you. Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. And Romans 3, 11 says, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. And Joshua 24, 15, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But Jesus says in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, I chose you. Finally, from the Gospel of John, the sixth chapter, Jesus speaking in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will no wise cast out. A few verses later in 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. Well, with that reading, it's pretty clear, right? We're done for the night. Any questions? No, it's clear as mud. It's not clear. That body, of, that body of scripture does not make it easy to resolve the conflict. But here we have seemingly opposite declarations in scripture, all inspired, all perfectly perfect in transmitting the truth of God to us. How come it's so confusing? Well, that's not a body of scripture. That's obviously disparate verses taken from the breadth of scripture and out of context. What it does teach us is you can take and build any doctrine at all ends of the spectrum if you're willing to take verses out of context and build a doctrine on them. As they say, any text taken out of context becomes a pretext for a false text, misunderstanding and error. And if we're willing to take things out of context, we can wander in whatever error we decide to choose. And we're all susceptible to that. As I said at the beginning, some of these men who are preaching Reformed theology, they're dear brothers in Christ. There are equally saved brothers in Christ that stand at the polar opposite, what we would call Arminianism. Well, why is it that there's this confusion? Well, it just seems to be confusion. You know, Proverbs 25, 2 says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out that matter. Well, do we need to find a king? Should we find a Calvin to follow or a Jacobus Arminius, an R.C. Sproul or some of the other names that we hear? And I don't mean to say that we shouldn't listen to what men say, but we should never take what they say and just accept it. If you accept everything I say tonight, you get a big fat zero. You should at least treat me as poorly as the Bereans treated Paul, not trusting him, searching the scriptures daily to see if what we're saying is true or not. Well, where do we find a king? Well, Revelation chapter 5 tells us that we're kings and priests unto God. As kings, we ought to search it out. Yes, we get together, and maybe we even argue, as it says in Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpening iron. Iron on iron brings sparks. But if the goal is to be sharpened and made keen, to rightly divide the word of truth, that's a, that's a worthy goal and an okay time for argument. The church is divided. We've talked about it already, the division between Calvinism on one end and Arminianism perhaps on the other end, by that name for only 500 years, but it goes back to at least the time of Augustine. But that's really a division there. Uh, at its foundation, Calvinism lifts sovereignty of God and it puts it above all the other attributes of God. And they say that God decides who is saved and who is lost. It's strictly his decision. Now some Calvinists say, well, God only choose who the saved ones are. He doesn't choose the lost. That's not what Calvin said, and it's just illogical. It's a word game. They're just playing games. If God chooses who's saved, 
Well, by default, those who are damned or reprobate are also chosen. Um, Calvinists justify their arguments with great words, lofty words. They claim that if we don't understand it, we're, we don't have wisdom. We're not wise. We're immature. We're infants. And it does tend to, to appeal to those who are intellectual. And then those who are intellectual lead the rest of us who are perhaps not gifted in that area, and maybe that's a blessing, can lead us astray. But again, they claim it takes great wisdom and spiritual maturity. As a spiritual infant, they don't expect you to understand it or follow it. The Arminian camp on the other end, named for Jacobus Arminius, says um, that unlike the Calvinists who said, God chooses who's saved, and if you're saved, you can't lose your salvation. The Arminians say, whosoever will may come, but they also say that you can lose your salvation. Now, that's not a position Jacobus Arminius held. He didn't believe you could lose your salvation. He really was a Calvinist who just felt that there was free will. Both of those camps are wrong. Uh, pride defines both of them. As I said a few weeks ago, the Calvinist is overtaken by pride in the fact that he's elect, and the Arminian is overtaken by pride in the fact that by his works he earns or at least maintains his salvation, and the pride is the downfall. Um, I spoke already about the attributes of God, and any list we might make is going to be by our finite selves. We're never going to do justice to God, but if I might run through a few of them here, and we're going to focus on three of them, love, justice, and sovereignty. But the attributes of God include his eternal nature, his goodness, his grace, his holiness, eminence, that's his closeness. We can't ride and hide from him any place. Transcendence and self-existence, mercy, omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience, knowing all things, and righteousness. But again, let's, let's look at three of those attributes, love, justice, and sovereignty. And let's think about what importance we assign to each of those attributes and how we allow it to define our vision of God and how we interpret Scripture and where that might lead us. What happens if we improperly elevate any of the attributes of God and give them supremacy over the others? We make it supreme and all the others subordinate, wherein we must fulfill all the attributes of that, all the dictates of that attribute that we elevate and only allow the other ones to exist when there's room for them. Let's take love. If we make love supreme and put it above all the rest of the attributes of God, what kind of a doctrinal statement might we end up with? Let me read a couple of verses. Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 37 to 39. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow, that's, if love is supreme, we've got full freedom right there. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. Romans 5, 8, of course, tells us that God showed his love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 16, finally, 
and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love, 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 love. All we need is love. Boy, if we could just get a catchy tune, that would, might take <laughs> off. <laughs> you know, we joke, but if love is supreme, that destroys justice. There's no room for justice if you fill all the dictates of love. It is done away with justice. The justice of God is no more. Unitarianism results. No one can be lost. Everybody's saved. We know that's heresy. Well, if love cancels out justice, let's, let's flip the coin here and go with making justice supreme. Well, then Exodus 21, 24 to 25, that familiar series there, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and so on, well, it starts to become a little more fearful. Ezekiel 18:4, God says, you know, all souls are mine. But at the end of that verse, he says, the soul that sins, that soul must die. Sobering. Isaiah 61.8. For I, the Lord, love justice. Hey, there we go. There's our, there's our justification for elevating justice, right? For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering, and I faithfully will give them what is due them. We'll jump to Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 and 13. We spoke a little bit about that this morning. It says here, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the death, the dead which were in them, and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. If justice is supreme, when we feel its dictates, there's no room for love and no one could be saved. Either one of those positions brings great error and it's not faithful to the attributes and the very nature of God. So let's talk about sovereignty. To be sovereign, you define it as, to be sovereign is to possess supreme power and authority so that one is in complete control and can accomplish whatever he pleases. Or what pleases God? Look, virtually no Christian is going to deny the sovereignty of God. You'd have to deny far too much scripture. So we'll gladly stipulate the sovereignty of God as it's displayed so eloquently throughout scripture. I won't go to a bunch of them. We know it's there. There's some great ones in the psalm that says, um, he's established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over them. He does whatever he pleases. He does whatever he pleases in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all the deeps, according to Psalm 135. The problem arises with what the Calvinists assign to the meaning of sovereignty of God. They say, as I mentioned, that God chooses not only who's saved, but all things. There is no free will. Nobody can make a decision. Now, there are Calvinists who don't carry to that extreme. I, I understand that. But if you read what Calvin wrote and really take the logic and the truth of Calvinism, God's sovereignty, according to them, is destroyed if any free will is shown. When sovereignty is made to overrule God's other attributes, 
It forces a perverted understanding of God. And we must rest and change the meaning of plain scripture to support the assertions of Reformed theology. Of course, that's true of any doctrinal error, even some that we might unwittingly hold. You know, while sovereignty elevated to the supreme position might allow some love and justice to be manifested, sovereignty elevated to the supreme position will not allow any free will. It utterly destroys it. It disappears. There can be no free will. And the practical effect of God's sovereignty, if it's as Calvin and his followers teach, is that all things are laid at the feet of God. No one has any choice. They say even the slip of a finger of somebody typing on a typewriter is dictated, pre-planned, foreordained by God. Some would claim that's oversimplification. No, it's not. That's functionally exactly what is being taught, what is being said. I'm not trying to put words in their mouth. If you go and read what Calvin said, this really is essentially their doctrine. That makes God the author of sin. That is an ugly truth. It defames God. The pure God of heaven, the author of sin, that's the inescapable conclusion if there is no free will. We're going to show tonight that there is free will, of course. This is an error, and as I said, there are good and godly men who hold this position. I can't for the life of me fathom how they arrive at that. And yet there it is. You can trace this back uh, to Augustine. It really begins with the concept of total hereditary depravity. Augustine is the first one that we have record of that I'm aware of who taught that. He was in a pitched battle with a man named Pelagius who had a, another terrible heresy. Pelagius denied Romans 5.12. He did not believe that we were born in sin. He believed that we were born innocent and perfect and that we could live a sinless life. And Augustine was rightly contesting him on that. And Augustine ended up at this point where he said, man is so depraved, he cannot even begin to move towards God or make a decision to be saved. God has to do it for him. Now, Calvin took it much further. Augustine seemed to say that it was free will, but maybe it was just in non-spiritual matters. How he was able to reconcile that position, I didn't dig into that very deeply. But out of total depravity, since God says, we, or since Calvin says we cannot even choose God, well, we have to figure out a way that man could be saved, and that's where unconditional election arises. God has to make the choice. He's going to bring us to salvation. One error tends to beget another error. Calvinists, again, attribute to God the decision whether a human being, out of the pleasure of his, the good, his divine good pleasure and will, he will choose those who go to heaven, and he will equally choose those whom he will reprobate, whom he will send to hell. And somehow this brings glory to God in the mind of the Calvinist. Here's how it's defined by those who teach Reformed theology. I just took this definition right off of a website which uh, teaches Reformed theology. Their definition of unconditional election. It is the doctrine which states that God chose them, those whom he was pleased to bring to a knowledge of himself, not based on any merit shown by the object of his grace, that would be us, and not based upon his looking forward to discover who would accept the offer of the gospel. God has elected, based solely upon the counsel of his own will, 
some for glory and others for damnation. He has done this act before the foundations of the world, quoting Ephesians 1. They go on to say, this doctrine does not rule out, however, man's responsibility to believe in the redeeming work of God the Son. They go on to make this statement, Scripture presents a tension between God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility to believe, which it does not try to resolve. They're saying Scripture doesn't even try to resolve this tension. Well, that's because it doesn't exist. It's an invention of the Calvinist. Again, because they say that man can't choose, they're forced to come up with these other ideas. They're invented. They infer that this is what Scripture said because they have chosen to believe as a foundational truth something which is in error. They go on to say both are true. To deny man's responsibility is to affirm an unbiblical hyper-Calvinism, while to deny God's sovereignty is to affirm an unbiblical Arminianism. Well, you're not a Calvinist if you're not a hyper-Calvinist. Basically, those who say they're not hyper-Calvinists are just being intellectually dishonest. You can't be a partial Calvinist. I know many at times I've said it myself, well, I'm a, I'm a one-point or a two-point Calvinist. It doesn't flow. I'd say that out of ignorance. And I freely, you're listening to an ignorant man tonight. But hopefully it's through Scripture and in the Spirit speaking that you won't hear anything coming out of me. They say God is sovereign and he cannot allow any man to make any decision. Uh, even the, the better of the Calvinists say you, you can't make it seeking after salvation. They'll say correctly that Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him to me. They conveniently forget that Jesus also said, and I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. How does God draw men unto, unto the Lord Jesus and unto himself? They ignore verses like Isaiah 45, 22, in which God says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth. How do they reconcile that? Well, the, in the scripture they will address, they say, well, that's only speaking of the elect. And we're going to talk about who the elect are in a few minutes. Hebrews 2, 9 tells us that Jesus Christ tasted death for every man. We have lots of verses that lead us to this understanding that the propitiation for our sins is not for us only, but for the entire world, John said to the believers. We're told that, again, that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why couldn't he die for those other sinners too? You know, God pleads with mankind down through Scripture from beginning to end to be reconciled unto him. He spoke to the Jews and through them to us in Ezekiel 18, Verses 31 and 32, he says, cast away from you all your transgressions. He's asking them to make a decision and take an action here. Cast away all from you all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. He repeats it again in Ezekiel 33, where it says, As I live, saith the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Well, if the lie of unconditional election were true, why would God plead with an entire group of people to change if some of them were unable to turn? Why wouldn't God save them all if that would please him, given that it is purported to be his sovereign will that is the deciding factor on whether somebody comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ or not? 
Is it fair for God to punish one person more severely than another if neither has the ability to, or opportunity to believe God and his laws and respond? I'm going to look at the warnings that Jesus gave to uh, some of the unrepenting cities, and that's important. But at the end of this, there's an important verse that sort of refutes what the Calvinists say. Well, it's, you're not wise enough. You're not spiritually mature enough. You're nothing but an infant in the Word. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus rebukes the cities in which most of his miracles were done. He says to Chorazin in Bethsaida, Woe unto you, for if the miracles which had occurred in you had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He went on to say the same thing about um, Capernaum, comparing them to Sodom. Right after that, Jesus says this. At that time, in verse 25, Matthew 11:25. at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Mr. Calvin, you can call me unwise. You can call me an infant. I'll wear that title gladly. And seeking knowledge and wisdom, I'll turn to the Spirit of God and listen to what Scripture tells me. Would Jesus really condemn those who can't possibly turn to him, they can't choose? I think the clear answer is, Scripture portrays man has free will. It's portrayed throughout Scripture. Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4, talking to the Israelites before they're going to the Promised Land, he says, Thou shalt find him if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. And, of course, that's mirrored again in Jeremiah 29, 13. Seek the Lord in his strength and seek his face evermore, Psalm 105. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found in Isaiah 55. Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus said in Matthew 6. And in Luke 11, everyone who asketh receiveth. Every one. What does that mean? Every one. Again, scriptures. Do I have to till four or five in the morning? We might. We might be able to get. We might get through a quarter of them. As usual, I came with more material than I need. Help me pray that I'll. I'll cut it down. Deuteronomy 30. Uh, Moses began speaking to the Israelites as they're getting ready to enter the Promised Land. He says, "I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live." The same message from Joshua shortly thereafter as they're getting ready to go into the promised land. Joshua 24 he said, Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites. A few verses later in 22 um, or 21, they say, We will serve the Lord. And Joshua said, Ye are witnesses against yourself that ye have chosen. Judges 10, we have a picture of those who choose the other direction, make the wrong choice. God speaking to him says, Go and cry unto those gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. The psalmist in Psalm 119 makes several mentions of this. I have chosen the way of truth. And let thy hand help me, for I have chosen thy precepts. Finally, in Isaiah 65, and then again in 66, almost the same words. And again, this is going to speak to what is the, the nature of God. Is he really, would he really treat his people with contempt? 
and taunt them with something that they can't respond to. In Isaiah 65, verse 12, he says, Therefore will I number you to the sword, and ye shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, ye did not answer. When I spake, ye did not hear, but did evil before mine eyes, and did choose that wherein I delighted not. In the next chapter, Isaiah 66, the end of verse 3 and into verse 4. Yea, they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delighteth in their abominations. I also will choose their delusions and will bring their fears upon them, because when I called, none did answer. When I spake, they did not hear, but they did evil before mine eyes, and chose that in which I delighted not. These Israelites whom God called, they chose evil, that which God did not delight in. Was that God's will? Did he foreordain them to choose that evil? Well, who are the elect? Maybe this will rattle the timbers, but I suspect not. You all have forgotten more about the Bible than I've learned so far. Um, but who are the elect? It's every man, woman, or child on the face of the earth. And I think Scripture bears this out. All human beings are elect. We know what John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. It's whosoever and the world. That's pretty inclusive. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, again we mentioned this morning, for this is good and well-pleasing to God our Savior, who wills all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Second Peter 3, 9, God desires that none, none should perish, but that all should repent. He wants none in the perish column and all in the repent column. In John 12, 32, as we've mentioned, Jesus said, If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. I think God's original election was that all men be saved. It's pretty clear in Scripture. That's his desire. That's his perfect will. But God does permit men to reject salvation so that some will be saved and some won't. That's God's permissible will. His perfect will is all are elect and all he'd like them to be saved. That's his desire. But giving us free will, some will reject him. That's God's permissible will. There are consequences for not following God's perfect will. All men and events and all things concerning man and the earth will follow one of those two wills, God's perfect will or God's permissive will. Potentially all are elect, all could be saved, but it comes down to will they choose God, will they love God? <clears throat> well, if God's perfect will is that all men be saved, how come they're not all saved? Well, again, as we've said, man has free will. We can reject God. You know, I, when it comes to thinking about Reformed theology and Calvinism, I hadn't thought much about it. But talking to Jabe several years ago, he brought up the worry and the concern. And thinking about that, I, it all of a sudden struck me. The God of Calvinism is not very sovereign. And I've taken to telling Calvinists that. I'm sorry, the, the sovereign God of Calvinism just isn't sovereign enough for me. They're flummoxed. They don't know what to say. They say, you're the one who has a God who's not sovereign. You think you can actually make a choice. 
said, oh, my God is sovereign enough that when he sets aside, sovereignly decides to set aside his sovereignty, he lets me make a choice, and if I may make a bad one, he's sovereign enough to deal with it in the aftermath. The God of Calvinism is locked into a little box of sovereignty that he can't move from. Now, there are things God can't do. Clearly, in Scripture, God gives us free will. It's really pictured here. Think about this. Listen to this one. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. I know about kicking down doors and going in. That's not what Jesus is saying he's going to do. Now, look, I know this is written to a church, but it's a dead church. And what's the picture? I am not going to beat down the door. I am knocking. I am calling out if you hear my voice. And if you open the door, I'll come in and sup with you and you with me. If we talk about who the elect are in the Bible, if we really want to get inclusive, it's not just about who's saved. In Isaiah 42.1, we have this, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. It's Jesus, Messiah. He's called an elect. Well, we might expect that. But how about Isaiah 45.4, where God calls Israel mine elect? Peter calls the church elect in 1 Peter 1, verse 2. And finally, in 1 Timothy 5, uh, we have Paul calling, speaking of, and the elect angels. So it depends on uh, the context and even which realm. We have the angelic realm. Some of the angels are called elect. Well, let's try to settle the mystery of predestination and elect as it relates to salvation and going to heaven. So if you would, if you want to turn with me here, we'll spend a little more time. I'll try not to jump around as much. We're going to go to Romans chapter 8. We could speak about predestination out of Ephesians 1. We're not going to have time. We'll just go here quick in Romans 8, uh, 28, 29, and 30. You guys have heard me speak on these verses before. I, I love them dearly, especially 29 and 30. But it's a comfort, 828 as well. Often quoted out of context, but still applicable, even in the way it's misused at times. Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. I'll try not to be confusing here, but here, them that love God, that's a subset. They're amongst those who are the called according to his purpose. If all people are called, are elect, them that love God are a subset of that. Everyone in this age of grace are the called. Everyone in all ages, actually, but we know that most people in this age don't love God. Therefore, um, those that love God are called, but not all those that are called love God. The word says, many be called, but few chosen in Matthew 20. The next verses, 29 and 30, tell us who and what the chosen are. And I would say right now that they look back at those who love God in verse 29. Romans 8, 29, for whom he did foreknow, foreknow, now there's, there's an interesting word also. The Calvinist says God only foreknows something because he's pre-planted. It's not that he can see the future, it's just that it's all according to the counsel of his will. He's already pre-planned it. But you know, as God said in Isaiah 41 through 46, as he's speaking of Cyrus and uh, judgment on Babylon and that, he says, hey, I tell you the beginning, I'll tell you things before they happen. As Jesus said, I tell you before it happens, so when it does happen, you'll know that I am he. God lives outside of time. He sees all of eternity in a moment. So here it says, for whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, 
So those who are predestinated to be conformed to, to the image of his son are looking back at those he did foreknow. He also did predestinate those who would conform to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And now verse 30, again looking back at whom he foreknew. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. The thing that qualifies throughout this set of scriptures is those who love God and those he foreknew. And the, the glorious thing there, as I mentioned this morning, is if you've ever been justified, You've also been glorified. Earl Rademacher would say it this way. He said, I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. To point out the three tenses of salvation. Yet in the Greek here, justified and glorified are on the aorist tense. They took place in the past. As I've said before, this is obviously not a glorified body. But I'm promised that there's a tent not made by human hands in heaven waiting for me be given to me when Christ comes to receive those who are his. Though all are called, most take themselves out from being amongst the group, maybe called the chosen, because they don't love God. Anyone can be a believer if they choose. The invitation is to whosoever will. And again, the reason they're not elect and chosen because they don't love God, they reject the gospel, they reject the love of Christ. Their pride will not allow them to submit unto God. We've talked about John 3, 16 and 17, how it encompasses the world. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Again, speaking of the world, we talked about second, or 1 Timothy 2. It's pleasing to God who wills that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And in verse 6 there, he says, who gave, speaking of Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 4, verse 9 and 10. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Who did he save? All men. Who are going to be in heaven? Those who believe. You know, in John 1, uh, John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He didn't say he takes away the sins of the, the elect or the chosen few. 1 John 4, verse 14, we have seen and, test, and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Again in Isaiah 45, how do we get past that verse? 22, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. All of those elements are there. Look unto God. Make a decision. Exercise faith. Be saved, all ye ends of the earth. The above is clear scriptural proof that God desires all men to be saved. But it's not of man. It's all of God. God made provision for it. He provided it. But we must accept it. 
It's up to us to accept it. The Calvinists say that's an act, faith is an act of, of works. No, it's not. You just have to receive it. If by faith we receive it and it is a, a work, well, then it's no longer a gift. They'll point to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and say that the gift there is faith. But the Greek does not allow that interpretation. The Greek points back at grace. The gift, the free gift, is grace. We receive it by faith. If I hold a $100 bill and say, this is mine, but I transfer ownership to you, if you don't come and take it, all you have to do is believe. You don't do any work for it. You just accept it. And if it goes back in my pocket and I walk away with it, although it's legally yours, you don't get the benefit of it. That's the truth about the gospel and accepting it. If it really was completely up to God, as all these scriptures show, then if it was completely up to God as Calvinism defines it, all men would be saved because that's clearly God's desire and decision. No, because of free will, some men will reject it. Again, I could go through quite a few verses here. Um, we've already kind of beat it to death. Whosoever will, we can see it from both the positive and the negative. In Matthew 16, 25, it's whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. We've got the choice. Mark 16, 15, Jesus gives us not a suggestion but a commandment. Go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. If we went out and preached, Jesus died to save you, and they're not one of the elected to be a lie. How can we preach the gospel to everybody? Again, in the continuity of Scripture and being faithful to the Word, limited atonement cannot be true. Unconditional election cannot be true. It won't work. The Calvinists get it backwards on how salvation occurs. They believe you've got to be born again first and then God gives you faith. No, it doesn't work that way. How do we draw all men unto Jesus Christ when he's lifted up? Well, God does give faith to men. It is a gift, but he gives it equally to all men. Romans 12:3 says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. How does that faith become saving faith? Well, Romans 10, 17, verse we're well familiar with. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How does God draw men unto Jesus Christ when he's lifted up? Romans 10, why would he give us these commands here in Romans 10, 14 and 15? How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Who sends a preacher? Well, God does. He lays it on the heart. He strengthens. By the power of the Spirit, we go out and preach the word of God. And by the word of God entering the hearts of men, the Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, as you can see, there's many scriptures proving that Calvinism's unconditional election is false and limited atonement. The Calvinists only look at the verses which support their theology or they badly twist everything else. As one guy put it, um, and, I'll, I'll quote, and I, I didn't get his name. I'm not a very good steward of, of giving credit where credit is due, but a man said this, and I thought it worth repeating. 
A person reading the Bible would never come to Calvinistic conclusions on their own. They would have to be taught Calvinism by men to ever see it. Calvinism is a teaching that denies parts of the Bible. It is a confused theology from beginning to end and needs to be discarded completely. It is time we started reading the entire Bible instead of relying on a theology of a man that had incomplete revelation coming out from under the dark ages and is also holding some heretical beliefs on how you get saved. Calvinism added an assumption to the Bible that never was meant to be, which is that man does not have a free will. There is no Bible verse stating or even implying such a conclusion. However, there are thousands of examples of men using free will to make decisions. Indeed, whosoever will may come. There is a scarlet thread of redemption, as we mentioned this morning, that runs throughout the Bible from the blessings promised in Genesis 15 and 22 through Abraham to all nations. And that scarlet thread of redemption runs through the entire Bible. Jesus said, in the whole of the scroll it is written of me. Ending in Revelation, the last chapter, almost the last verses in the Bible, we get God pleading, imploring, telling us we can come unto salvation. In Revelation 22:17, it is written, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whosoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Ultimately, these two views, the view of Reformed theology and unconditional election versus election and free will of the Bible, each beg a question. If we embrace Calvin's view of predestination and election, if we cling to Reformed theology, we're faced with this very troubling question. Why didn't God save everyone? Since it was in, within his power to do so, his sovereign will, he could if he wanted. Why didn't God save everybody? That's the question that Reformed theology begs. If we take what Scripture plainly says and accept free will and the love of God and the desire to save all men, we have a different question. That question is this. Why would anybody reject the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ, the free gift, when God graciously allows us to make that decision? I can't answer that question. God can't answer that question. Only each individual can answer the question of why they would reject God. We're told it's going to be pride. What logic? As Dave Hunt said about Calvinism, what love is this? Father, we thank you for your word. Again, we, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray for the work of this assembly and its ministries. But we also lift up those brothers and sisters around us who are your servants. We don't for a moment think that we are completely without error in our understanding of Scripture. And we pray that you would pour out conviction upon us where we're wrong. That we might repent and cling to that which you show to us. That as your son promised, the Spirit would guide us unto truth. And we also pray for our brothers and sisters admired in theology which is misrepresenting, which defames your name, which gives atheists 
reason to blaspheme your name. They're right in calling a God a monster who would create an individual in sin, leave him in sin, and then condemn him for it without having the opportunity to flee from it. But we thank you, Father, that you're a God of love. All your attributes in perfect harmony, in perfection, demonstrating your love and your forbearance, your long-suffering, that we might struggle. We pray that you would strengthen us and lift us up, that you would help us to finish well, that you would strengthen us as we try to speak the truth in love, help us to understand that truth more fully, and in all things that we might bring glory and honor to your name, that to that of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, Father, we desire to lift him up that all men might be drawn unto him. We pray that if any have heard this message and struggle with eternal security or the knowledge of salvation, that they would not depart tonight without getting more information and coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. We pray that as we uh, break from this meeting and go to share a meal to celebrate uh, the marriage of Chelsea and Christian, that you would bless the hands that prepared it and serve it that we would enjoy it in the bond of unity, the spirit of love bound together by your spirit as brothers and sisters in Christ as we honor marriage between these two, which is a picture of Christ's love for the church. Again, Father, we just thank you. We bless you and exalt your name and that of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.